Welcome to this edition of Medals and More. Now, we obviously all know what medals are. We can see them. We can touch them. I mean, we can even wear them. But what do we mean by and more? Well, recently UK Sport unveiled its new 10-year strategy, where perhaps the and more part comes into a little bit more focus. In striving to create the greatest decade yet of extraordinary sporting moments, reaching, inspiring and uniting the nation, it's going to take more. I'm Catherine Granger and welcome to the final episode of season two of this podcast. In this edition, we explore aspects of the new UK sports strategy and how it will impact the high performance community. And we hear about inspiring changes that are already happening. Designing and launching a new strategy was something I'd never been part of until the last couple of years when UK Sport started with a public consultation to help plan for the future of Olympic and Paralympic sport. It had to be something that took the very best of the past, as there had been such a brilliant and successful recent past, but also looked to a new future, adapting to the changing times and staying relevant in people's lives. What was striking was the overwhelming desire to keep seeing our teams being successful on the global stage, but to make sure that success was healthy and positive and carried out with integrity. I heard firsthand from many athletes that they were driven by more than just a singular desire to compete. They wanted their efforts to mean something, to matter. They wanted to add value to the wider community and have a purpose beyond a binary result of win or loss. With such drive and motivation, it's exciting to see where we will take this brilliant sporting success story next and what positive impact it could have. Shortly, we'll be hearing from the president of World Athletics, who also helped to win and then deliver the London 2012 Games. You know, I've often said to John Major when prime ministers are thrashing around for legacy, and John often talks about the Good Friday Agreement and, you know, and all sorts of things. I said, John, your legacy is the profoundest legacy I think any British prime minister has left the UK since the war and that outside of the Clean Air Acts of the 50s, the creation of the National Lottery has changed the face of the lives of so many people in the UK. And that's that's your legacy. I said to him, we wouldn't have had the London Games. That's why I gave him accreditation for every event. But before we hear from Lord Sebastian Coe, I'm joined by Georgina Usher. Georgina has worked for various blue chip organisations like IBM and Legal in General. She's also represented GB in fencing at numerous world and European championships, winning 10 national championships and gold at the 2014 Commonwealths. And since 2014, Georgina has been the chief executive at British Fencing. Alongside Georgina today is Sam Parfit. He's the founder and the chief executive of the True Athlete Project. Sam's a former tennis player, but more recently he's been working very closely with Georgina and British Fencing, putting into practice the principles of the organisation he founded. So the True Athlete Project is designed to build a more compassionate world through sport. And it really came about uh, in part through my own sort of experiences of sport as a young athlete and then as a coach. And I moved to the States at 18 to play Division One college tennis and had four years of very, very poor health, kind of in and out of hospital the entire four years. Really left sport with this very strong sense of the paradox of sport. On the one hand, it can be this incredibly liberating, joyful, meaningful pursuit. And on the other hand, it can be really pretty harmful when you see that sort of colder, more damaging side of the sport, either physically or mentally, emotionally. And at the same time, I was working with a, a very good sports psychologist, 
had been introduced to mindfulness-based practices, was working uh, with at-risk Hispanic immigrant youth with soccer. I was a tennis player, but started to get into involved in other sports and was seeing that same experience actually at all levels of sports. So not just for me, but for elite athletes with a high profile in the media, with peers at other university colleges, with my sister's experience of PE, and even in that very grassroots level where it should all be about this incredibly kind of freeing, fantastically positive, uplifting experience. And even that experience was being taken from these kids. So these themes are sort of bubbling up in me and, and I was becoming more and more passionate about, okay, what can I do to make a difference? And I got a position as a head of sport at a school that didn't have a PE program, so could design something from scratch, which really tried to sort of experiment with a more holistic approach, thinking about mindfulness practices and sports poetry and parkour free running and studying heroes like Muhammad Ali. So it's a really good testing ground to think about, okay, how do you shift the perceptions of what it means to be an athlete actually from quite a young age? And that curriculum got picked up by the Muhammad Ali Center. And that's really where it, sort of the True Athlete Project TAP took flight. And I realized that there was this whole world of, of sport for social change, but very often that world was quite far apart from performance sport. So the idea was, okay, how do we create programs which are really exciting for athletes and coaches, but they not only improve performance, but also nurture mental well-being and cultivate a more compassionate society, a more compassionate culture of sport. So that was our challenge, bringing together lots of people from different disciplines, Olympians, Paralympians, mindfulness teachers, former UK health minister. Um, and then we created the vehicles for that mission. So we run uh, athlete mentoring programs, classes and workshops and retreats for athletes and coaches. We work with the Community Sports Centre. And now we've got this really exciting work with national governing bodies. And can I just ask, when you started the school in the States, did it feel like quite a different approach than had happened before? Was there a sort of surprise in the direction you were taking it? Yeah, I think so. Um, so it was in Tennessee, so not a particularly progressive bit of the world. So it was quite an interesting testing ground for me to sort of design this approach in a way that can be actually quite palatable for people who consider themselves to be sporty and um, and really love what sport gives them. And it's just broadening that appeal. How do we bring in others who are musical or artistic or creative or whatever, and actually have a much more inclusive, expressive way of doing sport that can actually help and benefit everyone. So I think the kids who particularly benefited from that program were probably the ones who were who hadn't seen themselves as athletes before and then realized actually there was a place for them. But since then, we've realized that this approach is perfectly suited for, for all levels in terms of what it can do at a very most elite uh, level too. And Georgina, bringing you in, were you aware of something you were trying to change or improve or identify and then found the True Athlete Project or did it come around a different way? Yeah, so I think the defining moment of reflection for British fencing was was back in 2017 when we lost funding and, and we had to close down our world-class programme. And what, what this did was actually gave us an amazing opportunity to really reflect on where that had gone and what we had achieved and some, we had some amazing achievements. But also we asked ourselves, is there is there a better way? If we were going to start again and build a new programme, what would be different about it? And this is more than medals. You know, what is the purpose of us as a national governing body when we put a programme on? Is it just about the medals or have we got a broader, wider role to play in that? In no way would we ever take away from the amazing experience that being part of a world class programme is. But, but often they have focused almost exclusively on this idea of performance outcome. 
And this was something that we wanted to really challenge. Sport is, is about people. We're not really about numbers. We're in a people business. So how can we create a future vision of a program that, of course, we didn't have the money to start a new program straight away. But what could we do so that future athletes, when they came to us, could experience a program that valued them as a whole person, not just as what they brought to the table in terms of their numbers. So they're not just an athlete. We value them as people. And so this really took us on a, a journey of exploration, because when you start to ask these questions, the answers aren't easy. Unfortunately, probably the answers are there. How do you make someone lift heavier weights, run faster? There's, there's answers out there. What's this concept of, and, and in your strategy, winning well, well better people? How do, how do we make that? How do we measure it? And so a lot of these conversations were happening. Uh, I talked a lot about we needed to be more than simply medals and, and what's the meaning beyond medals for the NGB, for the communities of people doing fencing and people who don't do fencing and the athletes in there. These conversations were happening and the person who connected us was actually an ex-Olympic athlete, uh, Lawrence Halstead, who works with Sam on the True Athlete Project. So I think Lawrence particularly had probably his ear bent on a number of occasions of my views of kind of what I wanted to achieve and how I would want to do it better in the future and hook myself and Sam up. As I think is really important in first conversations, we really connected around values and belief. So that was the first stepping stone is that we shared our visions about how we thought sport could be different and what we wanted to achieve. And we thought, you know, here is an opportunity to work together. And at that point, I don't think either of us, it wasn't launching straight into action plans it was this opportunity to explore and have wider and deeper conversations. And again, the loss of a programme meant that we weren't so busy chasing a medal that we couldn't step back away and stop and have broader, wider conversations with athletes, with coaches, with staff about what this could mean. So I think that was, that was the story of how we got together. With that initial discussion, I think it's really interesting you're saying it wasn't straight to action, it wasn't straight to what can we do the next step, but the sort of more almost theoretical discussions. When you talked about sharing the values and the visions, can you explain what, at that very early stage, what sort of visions there were? I think less theoretical and more very heartfelt. So we shared our stories and connected at quite a personal level, I think about the pure experience of it. And I think we reflected on when sport is at its best, what it can do for individuals and what it can do for society. So sport is never neutral. You know, there's always an agenda behind it. So whether it's back in, so I did my undergraduate history thesis on um, the development of sport and the construction of national identity and how sport was used as a very powerful tool to turn boys to men and men into workers and soldiers. And, and actually, if you kind of fast forward, there's still an agenda to it. So what do we want that agenda to be? What does society need sport to be? Society needs sport to be at its very best so that we can confront the big challenges of today around compassion and mental and physical health and well-being, around connection with others and community and even bigger, perhaps, issues of climate change and, and sustainability. So we're probably thinking in quite lofty and heartfelt terms at the beginning and recognizing that, OK, we've had, I guess, both positive and negative experiences of sport. Lots of people in sport, in positions of power, have had quite good experiences of sport. They've seen what it can do and they felt that sort of not relying on just doing things the way they've always been done and not relying on doing things the best that we've seen it be. Like, how can we just kind of blow that wide open and really think big around um, at a human level what sport 
what sport can do. So yeah, started off uh, fairly lofty and then we started to get into more specifics around what that means in terms of practical, tangible steps in terms of mindfulness-based practices, for example. That's a really kind of strong thread through all of the work because of its ability to not only aid performance, by helping us with resilience and regulating our attention, regulating our emotion, but also all the evidence that suggests it's beneficial for mental health. And when it's done in a particular way, it can be very kind of pro-social, outward looking, aware of uh, the needs of others around you. So yeah, we started to design uh, how this would look in practice in a way that would actually bring everyone on board. So the projects, we were really lucky in that there were two different uh, funds available. So we could create uh, one big project out of two slightly separate funds. So the project has multiple layers to it that could strengthen each other. So there's work for parents and volunteers and staff and leadership and coaches and athletes at the very top and athletes through the pathway. So all of that really came together. But I think that the really important bit is that we didn't know exactly what we were going to do at the beginning. And that's quite a bold step for a sport to, to realize, okay, this isn't going to be a linear process. It's going to be complex. It's going to involve lots of relationship dynamics. That's quite a a big step um, and not a not an easy one and one that it can be messy and but it's the very same thing that actually you need when you're working at an individual level too so I think the athletes really felt that when you come in and you're genuinely caring you're ceding control to them and you're not coming with an off-the-shelf solution that's going to make them feel x in 10 days it's a much more human approach than that and I think that's the the important takeaway really from the the start of the relationship change is often a challenge to everyone because it's we've never done this before we've never tried this did you have everyone straight away thinking oh absolutely brilliant once you see it working and you feel it it's it's brilliant but until you have that point sometimes there's a sort of resistance or hesitancy in that you know what are we trying to do here will it work will it have the effect we want how did you find the ideas landing that's a really interesting question when i reflect back on the culture of british fencing at the time and i think a lot of ngbs would probably understand when I say that it felt like in the organisation prior to starting the work that we were doing together had two cultures. What you have is your participation culture. It's a much more nurturing culture. It automatically puts the person at the centre of the experience. It takes time to develop the environments to give people a fantastic opportunity with sport. And then on the other hand, you have this performance culture, which is primarily the first thing, first word out of everyone's mouth is medal, medals, medals. And so when you're sitting at the top of that, that can be an incredible challenge. So you're saying, right, well, we, you know, it would be lovely if we could bring an athlete into one of our participation programs with a genuine connection, not somebody who just wants a tick box for showing up. But of course, if their pressure is on that, that athlete to get their hours of training in, to do everything that they need to do to prepare for an event, there is no time and space to have conversations which might develop that athlete in terms of their ability to mentor younger athletes. And again, you know, you talk about your strategy, the thriving sporting system. I see that the whole connected nature of allowing our athletes to explore and develop as people, it will make a stronger system where more athletes will come through and more people will have a wonderful time with sport. So we were, again, and this is, I always talk about we were lucky and, and people say, well, you, you know, how can you be lucky to lose funding? But the pressure had gone. And what I did have was from both the staff and the board, and this is so important, we all had these discussions internally that this mattered to us. So part of our culture is we talk about it. We don't 
do things the easy way, we do things the right way. And so this wasn't the easy way of doing it, but this was going to be the slightly more difficult way, but everyone was bought into it. And, and I know, you know Sam, it would be interesting to hear your reflections when you come and meet the team, but you very much get the sense this is a team that is not paying lip service. They're not doing this work because the CEO met Sam once and, and did some visioning over a cup of coffee and then, gosh, you know, we've all got to go and do what the chief exec says. Parts of the reflection was reflection coming from my own team, the people working in with the athletes saying there is a better way. There's a better way of doing this and it won't compromise performance. So everybody, I felt actually as an organization brought us much more together because we connected by this the sense of of putting a person and it doesn't matter whether that person's picking up a sword for the first time and is going to have a great one-off experience that maybe gives them a bit of self-confidence that they may take and take to another sport and that's fantastic or it may be someone who's in the club fencing and creating that experience or they're an athlete that's going to end up on a podium with a medal around their neck. But each of these people, our people, should be valued. And that connection, I think, felt across the organisation is so powerful because once you then trust in each other that you share this set of values, the work that then gets done, we use the phrase hyper-connected because you start to pull all aspects of your business together and the common thread is the people, the person at the centre. You were saying sort of the athlete sits at the heart of all that. It also sounds like everyone benefited from or benefits ongoing from this in that, you know, it is also about the coaching staff and it's about the medical support and about all those. I mean, I've experienced all those incredible people around you who help you achieve anyway. But part of this was everyone had to feel they were part of it and, and would benefit from it in some way. We did some staff training. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, we set up. So the staff have had the opportunity to access mindfulness sessions. We've also did a compassionate communication session. And some of the skills that you learn, it doesn't mean that necessarily because you work in a different department, you're going to have a direct impact back on an athlete. But creating more compassion and trust within the organisation allowed people to raise issues and problems they hadn't raised before and during COVID that was such a powerful thing that you that with everybody suddenly going home and uh, you know and and you think oh gosh I'd like to have a conversation with someone it's much harder to do that over Zoom the skills that compassionate communication workshops brought to our staff allowed these very deep conversations to happen and then issues to be identified and fixed so it's not just we raise these issues and we talk about them and go, oh, well, they're issues. It's actually, OK, so what next? What are we going to do about that? But you, to fix the issue, you have to know it exists. And if people don't trust in people and there isn't that opportunity to raise things that are of concern, then, you know, that won't happen. So I think that for me, that organisational level is, is extremely important. And then, as you rightly said, the coach's journey, coaches have journeys too. Some of them have been athletes and some of them haven't. And any athlete development programme has running alongside a coaching development programme. And for me, it's extremely important that these things go hand in hand and are done in a connected way, because as every athlete will have a different response or um, understanding of what we're trying to do, the same can be said of coaches and it's our role to really make no assumptions about where they are on this journey I don't assume that every coach or that gets involved with our athletes understands what we're trying to do so it's our job to educate bring them in and let them go at their own pace 
because this isn't something if you rush it people will just tell you what you want to hear which is the worst because that that isn't the, the environment that's the kind of the false environment the, let's pretend let's pretend we're doing all this stuff but that's not going to help anybody and it certainly doesn't help us ultimately the athletes in times of stress you know the tools that they have in their kit bag need to be real and these conversations the coaches have with them need to be real conversations and so the time it's taking us to to get there is you know how fast can you go you go as fast as your athletes and your coaches will allow you to and try not to leave anyone behind and thinking, Sam, I mean, what, what must be great is working with an NGB who at every level buys into this and believes in this and holds it to be valuable and important. I'm just thinking when you've had those early conversations, where, where do you start when you're thinking this is a whole sport that wants to embrace it? It has been a very um, kind of relationship building heavy process. And that's been really fun, you know, developing personal relationships with people right the way through the organisation and, and really realising kind of where they are on that journey and finding common ground and being able to adapt the conversation and and really kind of explore together hand in hand it's not a top down it's not an intervention um it's not like i said it's not a sort of off the shelf thing it's really a process of of going on that journey together so i mean i think it was really important to have the buy in from leadership early on so with georgina and with steve particularly in the pathway side and then the first camp was a very organic process. I sort of turned up in Nottingham and we didn't really, we hadn't written me into the schedule yet, but Steve pulled out some of the coaches and said, meet Sam in the cafe. And so we had a chat around the table. And one really important bit in that first chat is helping coaches realize that they are literally some of the most important social change makers in society. Like the role that sport has to impact individuals and communities and society and the nation like that is enormous and so that really kind of elevates that role into something where you can be really proud about how skillful you can become about realizing these moments these opportunities where you can be kind of attuned to the needs of the people in front of you and, and those you have a duty of care to and so how do you become amazing at that how do you become world class at that bit and that's quite a way of looking at it you know it's it's safeguarding but in a really positive sense as opposed to just protecting against the negative which is also obviously critical so that was the start and then they said well do you want to come and do a bit now and so so that was the first moment was I came into Epe one of the three weapons in fencing and sat down with the with the fencers and they just had quite a serious chat around um uh, some policies and things at competitions and so I was like oh they've been sitting for a long time they probably want a fence but okay let's just go for it and so I shared my story and Honestly, the effect in that first weekend was just that sort of set the tone for for what was to come because people were just so receptive and so open and it felt like they were just so warm about kind of me sharing my story and difficulties and and we did a lot of dynamic exercises as well. So there was a sort of mix of me as a sort of sporty person coming in and yet we were talking about care and compassion and love and all these different things and it really worked and so I said you know at the end okay well I'm here all weekend just to gather insight and so you can you know come for I explained I had my mental health first aid training and you could come for conversations and we had seven fences come in that first wasn't even a day and a half for a, a mental health support conversation that was just really striking like okay there's um, there's something really to this you know if we can create an environment where people feel 
Like they can be their true selves and talk and break down stigma by doing this type of work in a sporting setting, then this could be huge. And it's really yeah, spiralled in such a positive way since then. How much time have you spent with members of the team or across the organisation? The project has multiple parts. So I attend every athlete development programme, ADP camp. So they're weekend long camps. They're about five or six a year. We also run a mentoring programme that runs constantly through the year. So that pairs elite fencers with junior fencers around a really holistic program that's designed to broaden and deepen who we are as athletes. So it touches on performance, but also athlete identity, mindfulness, community responsibility, nature even. So that runs all the time. And then we have the coach development workshops. We ran about 10 to 12 last year with some additional opportunities to engage and then quite a lot of planning around that so each camp you know it's lots of conversations before and afterwards with each weapon group to plan and really kind of fine-tune how we're going to integrate the triathlete project's work with the really important work of fencing and becoming great at your sports the bit that's just so lovely is the you know you do those things and we build out the theory of change we're confident that that the impact can come both in the short term and in the longer term. But then you hear these sort of ripple effects. And so I was having a conversation with a weapon coach the other day, and we were talking for like two hours. And then right at the end, he said, oh, and the fences you've been uh, delivering mindfulness to, they've been delivering mindfulness back at their club to the younger fences. They're now regularly delivering these sessions back to younger kids at their club. And it's like, okay, you just drop that in right at the end of a conversation, but that's quite a big deal. That's awesome. And you know, one of the one of the fences who came for one of those mental health support conversations early on, then uh, moved into the mentoring program, had a fantastic year with just a wonderfully supportive mentor, um, and has since become a really strong athlete in using her voice for change and bringing girls and women together to to advocate female rights in in fencing, and and has done that really skillfully. So just seeing those kind of ripple effects of the work is very very heartwarming, really. And one of the, the big things the True Athlete Project does is is the mentors you bring in are all former athletes, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. So we have a global mentoring program which pairs athletes across sports. So everything from bobsleigh to triple jump to cricket. And then this mentoring program with British Fencing was a version of that, but it was athletes all of the same sport. So elite athletes, many of whom are actually still competing. And, and they say things, you know, I, I think I got more from it than my mentee, even though they're still competing, they're finding that time to delve into these topics and be really supportive and get that kind of broader perspective of what their sporting journey means. And one mentor had a lovely reflection on, I didn't know I had so much to give. I didn't know like my journey had given me all of this stuff. And then I had to learn how to give it to someone else. And that was a really, really nice reflection. Georgina, where have you seen the real impact so I think like Sam, it's the, the stories and the reflections you get coming back at you and where people are connecting. So I was smiling as Sam was describing giving athletes their voices. And of course, you imagine the, you know, quite rightly armed with those voices, the knocks on the CEO door comes. And I think that for me, it's such a positive thing to embrace that. So having people stepping forward and saying, OK, so you've built this vision and you've given us this tools and we want more. Yeah, well, that's great. So let's have that conversation. Let's work on it together. And this idea that we absolutely have athletes that are stepping forward in different roles and becoming mentors. It's so important. There was kind of a reflection I had recently on Tokyo, which has been an incredibly stressful process for all athletes that are trying to qualify. And then you look at 
we've got two athletes, Marcus, who's qualified. So on the one hand, you've got a silver world championship medal winning athlete. And he is telling us that this stuff really matters to him. He's telling us that in times of great stress, the, the tools, the program and the work that we're doing with social impact and being more socially conscious, it matters. And on the other hand, we've also got those athletes that don't medal. And we don't talk about those athletes, but those athletes are part of the system. They're sparring partners. Everybody that mentors, if Sam could only pick the Olympic gold medals to be part of his mentoring program, there wouldn't be that many mentors. And, and the reality is, is that many athletes have so much to give. They just, in so many cases, don't know it yet. So I had a lovely reflection from an athlete that actually failed to make it to the zonal qualifier. We send one person to represent the country. And this athlete spent the year, very difficult conditions under COVID training, trying to secure the slot and didn't. And whilst, of course, he's incredibly upset by that, the reflection that he had was that when he watched what is effectively one of his teammates competing, he took pride in what he had done to help and support that athlete to get there. In previous iterations, when you're not the athlete that's picked, it's the conversation that often ends with people walking away. I did everything that I could to qualify for Tokyo. I didn't make it. I've had enough. Whereas bringing that meaning and purpose into people's lives that's over and above that simple valued for your qualification or your medal status is so important. So I thought that was a really two nice reflections from the athlete that does have the medal and the athlete that, that didn't quite make it and the power of, of the work that Sam's been doing with, with British fencing and how it transpires. I was going to say, is there an end point to it? Is there a point you think the work's been done now and, and people will continue it? on themselves or is this something that you'll just continue working together well, we would certainly love to keep working together i don't think a that we've ever thought about it and just thinking about it now i don't think that there is a particular endpoint. it's very much a commitment to this is a process that can always be fine-tuned strengthened and and it's responsive to what's really happening for people so that doesn't stop that doesn't stop being kind of life challenges and, and difficulty and surprises that that get thrown up. So I think we'd love to see this strengthen and, and in the spirit of what, kind of how it started in terms of being uh, an exploration. You know, we, we keep going and we keep uh, learning more and understanding more and and working out how to how to be better at this whole person socially conscious approach. And on that, Sam, what would be your own personal learnings from this so far, would you say? You can uh, genuinely have your cake and eat it in terms of high performance, mental well-being and duty of care and social impact. And so we understood that at an individual level and I think at a team level before working with British fencing, but actually realizing that we were right <laughs> with our hunch that this is a great way forward that actually works. That was a pretty cool learning that's given us a lot of confidence. I'm often surprised, which is fantastic, you know, being in the people business you, you don't know what is going on for someone else so like, there was a, a moment in a Manchester camp where there was a kid struggling with some of the mindfulness activities kind of very clearly so we were doing it like a body scan and he was sort of moving around or trying to talk to someone and sort of trying to bring in the few sort of friends around him and obviously wasn't sort of comfortable just giving it a go and I was starting to get quite frustrated because that, that is quite a frustrating thing when you're trying to deliver a like a meditation for example and it was happening you know it happened sort of three or four times over the weekend and I 
I was just about managing to embody mindfulness as it was happening, but it was quite difficult. And I was sort of talking to one or two of the other coaches, like what's happening there? And then I was sitting in the cafe and this kid, I saw him start to walk towards me and I thought, okay, normally the best thing in this situation is to develop a personal rapport so you can start to learn more about them. And, and he came to pick up his water bottle and took it. And I just said, how's it going? He just immediately opened up about like these mindfulness practices are why he comes to camps and it's made such a difference. And he had all sorts of difficulties with all sorts of different things and what a sort of transformative effect these practices have. And he's trying them at home and, and it was like, ah, oh, okay really interesting so that's a massive learning for me in terms of not judging a book by its cover and there are things like that that, that sort of crop up all the time which I think are, are really nice sort of personal learnings. There's something about don't assume very easy to make assumptions about where people are what they're doing in their lives what they feel as athletes and of course being a, a, an ex-athlete it's tempting to kind of go I know that space you know I know what it felt like because I, I did that once what I certainly would say is that the stress and the pressures that athletes today are under are phenomenally different to what they were 20 or 30 years ago. And so therefore, we need to hear more from those athletes. So I kind of think there's a real learning in, in terms of that willingness to listen and adapt and change. And again, if I could talk to myself earlier and say, well, you know, what lesson do I need to tell Georgina 60 years ago that we might have got here quicker and one of them would be don't make too many assumptions because you'll also be positively surprised the number of athletes that have come back and said to every single member of our senior athlete panel they're like this is the right way to do things and 60 years ago sometimes as a chief exec or in any work job that you're doing you have this feeling that things could be doing better and you think is it just me and going out and asking that question and connecting with people earlier, that would be something that I would encourage people to do and not be scared to have those conversations and put those ideas out. I do remember having some conversations in sport where we would talk medals, medals, and I would be sitting there going, am I the only person who just thinks that yes medals is important but it's not the only thing that's important and as we talk about these athletes and their physical achievements are we missing something here is there something that we could be doing better so I would say that's my two main points would be around not making assumptions and not, not being scared of actually putting your ideas on the table and listening to what people have to say about them and talk about ideas on the table I just want to ask Georgina as well about Muslim girls fence incredibly powerful and so impactful and I didn't know if you just wanted to explain a little bit about that project as well I was reflecting on where that came from. And interesting enough, when I first joined as chief executive of British Fencing, I was so lucky to go on a UK sport leadership programme. And one of the first sessions, the questions they put was all about meaning and purpose of you as an individual. Why are you here doing the job you're doing? And I thought, that's, that's a really great question. I mean, you can be there is a temptation to go, well, I'm a chief executive of a national governing body. So my purpose is to produce medals or in those times in my metrics are medals and participation so every time someone says what do you do you trot out the usual thing and of course but meaning and purpose is deeper than that so I thought, well what is my meaning and purpose and why am I here and that conversation and those the desire I think from myself personally 
to do something more. And again, we talk about more than medals, but it was was more than almost more than metric, something meaningful, something tangible. And that connected in the two other sort of connection points was I was, again, I always say incredibly lucky to have found fencing at a time in my life where I was very, very badly bullied. And sport, and many people have stories in sport about how it's kind of rescued you, but this was a particular challenge that I overcame and fencing was a real part of that. And at the same time, I read a newspaper article about young women, young girls in East London who were really, without going into too much detail, it was about not having the self-confidence to say no to people, to make choices, positive choices for yourself, because other people come to you and encourage you to do things that would be bad choices. And, and I thought, gosh, part of me was like, if only I could put a sword in the hands of all these girls, they'd have the confidence that I managed to get age 12. And of course, a slightly ridiculous notion that there was going to march down to the east of London with a fencing bag on my back and sort of distribute swords out and somehow save the world from, you know, a lack of self-confidence. But I really believed, and fortunately at the time, so did my chair, and um, David Teasdale was a chair back then, and the board. There was something to be explored about what benefit could fencing bring to communities and society more than simply the act of fencing. So what could we do? This started a series of conversations and you'll know what it's like I mean, when I have an idea I go around telling tell everyone your ideas because somebody somebody will go do you know what that's a great idea I'll be in your team and we'll do it together. I met so many people with this slightly again flimsy vision of, of what fencing could do, but this really powerful belief that fencing had as a tool, simply as a tool, it could help. And at that time, we were very fortunate. One of the meetings I got connected up through a friend of a friend with the Mazahar charity, and they worked with Muslim communities. And they'd never worked with sport. They'd never used sport as a tool in delivering their goals of supporting communities. And I was like, hey, we could we could do something together. And Again, that didn't start with immediate action plan. I'm not even sure we, we knew what that, how that was going to work, but we went on a journey together. And it's been amazing. And as you know from the film that's been released, it's had an incredibly powerful impact on the girls that were part of the project. But it's also now been rolled out across, we're in four cities at the moment. And almost every time I connect in with what that project is doing and, and the impact it's having on people's lives, always that impact is not about them coming back saying, I did 50 lunges this week, I'm so proud of myself. It's not about the activity they're doing, it's about the meaning in their lives. It's about, I see myself differently. A tremendous quote from one of the young girls, says, now I've done fencing, I could do anything. That for me, when somebody said, what is success? That is success. Not we got one more girl to do fencing. That's a, that's a participation metric. And it's this idea that we can use sport as a tool to support communities and looping this background. And, and for me, the connected nature of the high performance program is extremely important in this space. But this also provides athletes opportunities to connect back in with those programs and to get involved and to feel what I'm feeling. And then this idea that you're in some way giving back, reflecting on what you can do personally to, to help those projects. And, you know, when you go in and you speak to kids or you speak to communities, they're not going to be sitting there going, oh, yeah, well, exactly which Olympics and which medal. You know, the fact that if you're walking with a British tracksuit and you're part of a high performance programme, you've got something to offer. You're inspirational. 
And it's not just walking in and being part of it, but immersing yourself in that, really unpicking whether you, you're in as a coach or a mentor, you can do so much more. And we're not big enough to run projects that every athlete can connect with. But what we do do is encourage all of our athletes to explore that side of what they can get involved in, find a charity that you care about. And the athletes have really taken that on board. I, I'm struggling to think of a single athlete who's gone, no, not for me. They've all gone and go, well, actually, I've always wanted to do X. We've had some incredible conversations with athletes where their passions and their views about certain topics, whether it's environment or mental health, and then allowing and connecting them with those projects and the ability to to move into a space and back right back to start where they're valued as people not just athletes the more I do the more I step back if that makes sense because you start these projects running and you these visions that you throw at people like Sam who's amazing you know the, the people who are actually going to do the work and you watch this little this seed grow and and so what's the job of the chief exec and the board yeah keep watering the seeds let these grow and, and let them grow in the places that they want to go and let them connect up because this what they will produce if you let that happen will be so much more amazing than I think you could ever think of when you first started. One last question for you both. UK Sports launched the new strategy this month and it's looking to the future. So if I could give you both a magic wand and you could both have one wish for the future of high performance sport. What would that wish be? If every person that connected in with a high performance system came away feeling, you know, we talk about better people, feeling like a better person. And whether that experience they have with a high performance system is a short one or a long one, I don't want anyone to turn around and say, I wasted the best years of my life on trying to get an Olympic medal. I didn't make an Olympic medal. I didn't make the Olympics. But the thing I absolutely, I would do it all again tomorrow. If someone said you could go back, you could run that whole 10 years of kind of working and then spending all my money on fencing and traveling around the world and knowing that the outcome is still the same, I would do that. Like the athlete that Sam referred to earlier, this idea that for people to connect with the, the value that they can truly bring back, Maybe my meaning and purpose wasn't for me to go and win an Olympic medal. And in fact, I reflect that perhaps if I had, would I be doing this job? I don't know. And perhaps I would have a very different view. And maybe my view would be much more performance focused and less sort of interested in the, in the holistic approach that we're taking. But for me, a more connected society where people feel like they are valued and they have their place so that no athlete stands on a podium with a medal around their neck and thinks, you know what, it wasn't worth it. They'll go, it was worth it. And the athlete that didn't qualify and the athlete that came fourth and the coach that didn't quite get their accreditation also goes, you know, I still had a positive impact on society, on the system, and I value myself and other people value me. So that's my magic wand. The True Athlete Project's logo is a butterfly and it's a butterfly because it symbolises that transformation of self first in order to then make this impact out onto the world. And so I think that you know, if, if we can get more and more and more people buying into the idea of genuinely nurturing the human behind the athlete and realizing that that is not mutually exclusive with high performance, you know, the very same things that can make us resilient, compassionate, present 
individuals are the very same things that can make us high performers. So, yeah, I think I think that. So it's a, it's a case of both protecting people in sport, making sure that we have that everyone feels safe, and then also the elevating what's possible through sport. That really joyful, healthy experience that can can have a, a huge knock-on effect. You know, the good news for me is that I don't think we necessarily need the magic wand anymore because I think you're already proving these things are possible and doable. So maybe we just need more people to commit to it and we can chuck away the magic wand. But thank you for the time you've given up today. I've loved speaking to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I have to say, I got so much energy from talking to Georgina and Sam there. I love their ambition for sport, the power of sport having a purpose and maximising the positive impact on individuals and also the lives of our communities. That quest for excellence is not simply an individual achievement, but one that can have positive repercussions everywhere. Now, talking of positive repercussions, it is time for my next guest. He needs hardly any introduction. He's a four-time Olympic medalist, including gold in Moscow in 1980 and Los Angeles in 1984. He then became a Member of Parliament in 1992 and was elevated to the House of Lords in 2000. He chaired the successful bid by London to host the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games, then successfully delivered the event, even convincing the Queen to leap from a helicopter during the opening ceremony. And I'm sure it was her I was there. He's also a former chairman of the British Olympic Association and a member of the International Olympic Committee. And he finds time in his day job to be president of World Athletics. Seb has always been a friend of sport and importantly he was present in 2018 when UK Sport launched a public consultation about the future of high performance sport in this country. Seb was very honest and told us back then that he did have some concerns about a refocus away from medal targets. Nobody in their right mind thinks that you have a blind chase for medals with no other consideration or thought attached to it. But I was also slightly nervous that people were describing a medal as, as almost a sort of a bypass or a distant relation to all the other things that were, were great in sport in the UK. And my gut instinct was then, uh, has been for many, many years, going back into the 80s when I was deputy chair of, of a previous UK sports council, that these are not immutable positions. If you want great uh, community sport, one of the greatest and the most potent drivers of that will always be the well-stop, what I've described as the well-stop shop window. So the process that you guys undertook, I was nervous at the time because I just didn't want what had been achieved seismically in Beijing and then again in London and remarkably in Rio, that's when I decided to step down from the BOA. I just, just couldn't think it was ever going to get any better. So I think athlete welfare and making sure that safeguarding policies and good coaching um, protocols and all the things that good coaches do anyway, but just to make sure that we, we sort of bolster ourselves against the accusation that, you know, it's medals come what may and the athletes sort of are sitting there in a pressure cooker without any great consideration for their well-being. I, I, I never thought of it in that way anyway, but I do think thus far, I think the balance is, is, is absolutely right. You've maintained, you know, a really focused eye on the delivery of great performances at the level that 
is your raison d'etre. But at the same time, I think you've sensibly paused for breath to look at where systems can be even stronger and that you can provide even greater defence for athletes, particularly in sports where maturation tends to be at a younger age cohorts. So congratulations. I think what you've done so far is terrific. Sebco also told us about how World Athletics are launching their own new strategy with many similarities to the one unveiled by UK Sport. We've just started in World Athletics something called our Global Conversation. So we have a strategic plan that will see us from 21 through to 25. And that's signed off by the executive board of World Athletics and our council. Those are building around four core pillars, participation, performance, making sure that we increase the fan base and driving growth. The global conversation is really about our world-class plan, our world plan, which will take us through to the end of the decade. So the world plan itself, we've got the outward-facing piece called the global conversation, and that is exactly what you, you guys have done. We are talking to all our stakeholders, we're talking to the athletes, we're talking to the coaches, we're talking to our partners, sponsors, we're talking to the federations. The federations have been encouraged to go beyond the curtilage of the federation. And it allows us not to be sitting there marking our own homework. What do people going into our stadiums want to see? And, you know, where can we improve? Where do the fault lines sit? in terms of the bigger agenda. You know, we are an accessible sport, so we are the most participated sport in the world, actually, over a course of 10 or 12 days, over a billion people are sort of identifying themselves as leisure runners. We've all got assets that, at their best, are best exploited by just gaining public sentiment and taking people with you on that journey is really important. and alongside that journey, being able to actually document that journey, because most organisations tend to say, well, this is where we're starting in June 18, and this is the final report, go away and digest it, and haven't we done really well? What I think you guys are doing well on this journey is making sure people know at each stage of the way what this journey is looking like. The medal success that Team GB and Paralympics GB have seen in recent editions of the Games date back to the launch of the National Lottery in 1997 and the additional funding it meant for high-performance sport in this country. It followed a model the Australians put in place 20 years before. Australia and the UK had something both in common. It came out of the 76 Games in Montreal in really poor shape. Uh, in my own sport, I think only Brendan Foster came back with a um, with a medal on the track. I mean, one medal in, in track and field. Uh, and that was Bren's bronze in the 10,000 metres. Australia, unbelievably, did not have a gold medal in the swimming. And both countries went into a period of, of national mourning and ministers saying it was an absolute national tragedy. Australia created the um, high-performance... Uh, academies at Canberra and Victoria and every state created one and, and the big in sports institute at Canberra was, was created off the back of the 76 games. We just went into another, uh, one last heave should do it and a few of us came to the rescue in 80, like Daley Thompson and, you know, and Alan Wells and, and, you know, Duncan Goodhue and everybody thought, oh, well, you know, okay, there's a bit of talent out there, let's just, you know, leave the system untouched. So the National Lottery itself, for me, was 
You know, I've often said to John Major when member, when prime ministers are thrashing around for legacy, and John often talks about the Good Friday Agreement and, you know, and all sorts of things. I said, John, your legacy is the profoundest legacy I think any British prime minister has left the UK in, since the war. And that outside of the Clean Air Acts of the 50s, the creation of the National Lottery has changed the face of the lives of so many people in the UK and that's that's your legacy and I said to him we wouldn't have had the London Games that's why I gave him accreditation for every event and you probably saw his photograph pretty much at every sporting event and he drove it through in the face of massive massive uh, opposition in his own cabinet the big beasts like Michael Heseltine, you know, Douglas Heard, all these people did not want the National Lottery. And William Hague always told me that the funniest day that he was, he was a young cabinet and he was Secretary of State for Wales on the day that the lottery was launched. He said the cabinet meeting on that Thursday spent two hours discussing whether cabinet ministers should buy a national lottery ticket. Because in the unlikely event, statistically, that one of them won it, they then had the vision of the public thinking that the lottery forever was fixed and only cabinet ministers were ever likely to win it. It didn't work straight away. And 96 was too early to see that impact. But certainly by the time we got to Sydney and, you know, Craig Reading will tell you as chair of the BOA at the time, that just the ability to be able to have federations funded well enough to start having holding camps, you know, some of the academies and some of the high performance institutes around Australia by 2004, the team were then ensconced in Cyprus at uh, Aphrodite Hills. Slowly but surely, the funding war really started to, to make a difference. And finally, a message of support from Sebco about how UK sport is moving forward. I think the most exciting opportunity ahead, funnily enough, is to continually win that argument that what you guys are doing in creating world-class platforms for competitors and coaches is not somehow either that or it is grassroots funding and that, you know, because you guys are sitting where you are, you have no interest or concern about what's going on, you know, on Hackney Marshes on a Sunday morning. These are not mutually exclusive positions. And I think that the piece of work that you've undertaken and the way you've articulated the alignment between those two positions is really important. I'm Catherine Granger. This is Medals and More. Download and subscribe and you won't miss a moment. <laughs>